I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill, and welcome to Episode 21, Review and Discussion, Jack Hinson's One Man War, A Civil War Sniper by Tom C. McKinney. So, I highly recommend this book. We're going to do a little bit of housekeeping. Thank you, listeners, for the emails that continue to come in. Uh, thank you for the constructive criticism. At times, I don't get constructive criticism, but I can weather that. But nonetheless, I really appreciate the input feedback and, uh, and things that I receive. Thank you for that. I am always asked consistently, uh, what are you reading, Bill? So with that, I have just finished a book that I've wanted to finish for a long time, and that is How Can Men Die Better? by Lieutenant Colonel Michael Snook, a, um, an English writer, on the almost complete annihilation by indigenous forces, in this case the Zulu, January 22nd, 1879, at a in South Africa. I consider myself an amateur historian. I'm always interested in historiography and how historians arrive at the conclusions and lay out the books and films and and things that they have an influence in and shaping our perception of how the past evolved. One of the most valuable things ever taught to me in my years attempting to be a professional historian, which failed for reasons I won't bore you with, is that it's not about the dates and times, even though as a data point they're valuable. It's all about cause and effect. As far as great men and great events, what drives one another, I am agnostic to that, and I'm not certain what conclusion to draw, whether the great man influences the events or vice versa. I suspect that it is simply a distillate of both of them, depending on the complexity of the situation. So I read this book in my youth called Washing of the Spears by Donald Morris, and it was the be-all and end-all, the authoritative guide to the Battle of Isandalwana, which was the single largest loss of European forces to indigenous forces in Africa at the time in the 19th century. I think of the Sepoy mutiny in, in um, I think it was 1857 in India, and I wonder at, well, how about the indigs there and what was the scoreboard? I'm not certain what that conclusion would be. But nonetheless, for Africa, this was it. Now, mind you, those who have seen that extraordinary film, Zulu, from 1962, Michael Caine's first starring appearance as Lieutenant Bromhead, in which he just did a brilliant turn as a, um, as a Victorian redcoat in Africa at the time. He is at Rourke's Drift. Rourke's Drift is sort of the accompaniment to this particular battle at Asundalwana because the Zulu Impis proceeded to lay siege to Rourke's Drift shortly after their fabulous victory from an indigenous standpoint over the almost total elimination of the 1st Battalion and parts of the 2nd Battalion of the 24th Regiment of Foot, which still exists today, and of which Snook is a regimental member. So he's writing another book called uh, Wolves in the Fold, sort of like an accompaniment 
to How Can Men Die Better, in which he is discussing what happened to Rourke's Drift, where instead of 1,300 losses, you have maybe a dozen losses on the part of the British and the stand that most of us who are historically literate or have watched the film are familiar with. Haven't finished Wolves in the Fold. We'll report on that as soon as I do so. I wanted to provide that not only as great ripping yarns to read, but as a warning, a cautionary note on what to believe and what not to believe in these times. Of course, here we are in the 2020s. One would think that with all the data we have at our disposal and critical thinking skills attached to it, we'd be able to arrive at the single most accurate picture of what happened historically. Turns out that Morris was just such a poor historian, such a triumphalist narrative champion, and one who didn't make a lot out of both sides that it, it was awful. So Snook brings two things to the fold, as it were, and that's this. That's Lieutenant Colonel Mike Snook. He is a member of the regiment. Well, there's three things. He's a member of the regiment. He is a trained historian. And he's also a military member, and he's retired from the armed forces. So not only does he walk the ground, approach the ground, look at the roots, look at everything that was instantiated and characterized in that time in 1879, Soid Africa and the Zulu tribes and all of this, but he looks at terrain with a military eye. He looks at portages with a military eye. He looks at supply and logistics and what happens. I mean, one thing that we see in the movie, for instance, and one thing that Morris was a champion of was, well, they didn't get their ammunition for their very fine Martini Henry breech loaders that they were using at the time, which were devastating against the impies when they could be employed. Impy is the Zulu characterization of a brigade or regimental formation. In this case, if one were to read Morris's book and one were to watch the movie, you would think that the quartermaster was saying, oh, no, you'll have to sign for that and sign for this. Not the case at all. There was a single screw on the boxes because that's what uh, Mike Snook got a hold of, and he actually practiced it and discovered that yet another myth. So I bring that to your attention not only to keep you apprised of what I'm reading and what's stimulating my intellectual vibes and such, but to tell you always be skeptical and always think critically, especially there are members of my audience, I'll bet it's a lion's share, who have either had military experience, may still be in the military, or are retired from the military. You have an eye that you bring to conflict situations that normal human beings do not. I like to say a great example is if I were a swim coach and I'm walking around the airport, or I'm a running coach and I'm walking around the airport, I can identify by people's gait, muscularity, and the way they walk, whether they're good swimmers or not whether they're uh, good runners or not. I can see that because I have the experiential database in the intuition engine to talk about that. very. And a preamble about today's discussion of Colonel, he's a uh, Marine Colonel retired, Tom McKinney's book on Jack Henson's one-man war in the Kentucky-Tennessee borderlands from 1863 to 1865 during the War of Northern Aggression. My wife... God's bless her, happens to be a blood relative of Stonewall Jackson. So not through me, but happily through my wife, the blood of Stonewall Jackson courses through my children's veins and will seek an immortality as my children have children and their children have children. 
So I've gone through an evolution when it comes to the Confederacy and the Union and the Civil War or whatever one wants to call that particular conflict from 1860 to 1865. Whatever your druthers are, follow them as you wish. I was raised in neither a Union nor Confederate household, and it just so happens, as I just described, that my wife, being a Southron, being from Nashville, and uh, having a father who was deeply interested and steeped in the literature, especially when it came to Confederate triumphalism, I remember many conversations that I would have with him about this very thing, and always considered myself almost an instinctive Confederate for several reasons, to include the fact that they did have the right to rebel as they did. And I am further convinced that Abraham Lincoln was probably one of the most awful and bloody-minded presidents this country has ever seen, but every president is saying, hold my beer when it comes to that. But nonetheless, uh, I'm no longer that way. I'm no longer a unionist nor a Confederate advocate or champion. To me, a pox on both houses, because what I discovered is that Number one, when one looks at the 11 ordinances of secession, slavery is usually in the first two or three paragraphs to include Texas. And the abolition of such an institution was not in the cards. Now, mind you, I do not suffer from the chronological conceit where I look back from this high and Olympic august mountaintop that we're all on now because we're so decent, well-informed, and morally superior to everything that ever happened before us, going all the way back to the dark mists of time, I don't have that notion at all. Because I know that, for instance, in the 19th century, thanks to the early 19th century and the works of William Wilberforce and what he did in the British Parliament to set in train the notions that the ownership of other human beings was wrong— and as a matter of fact, several decades after his declarations in the teens of that century, we have the British Navy with squadrons that are dedicated to intercepting members of said slave trade, slave trade, both in the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. But what I find really interesting is so many people say, well, slavery was wrong. Well, it, it, it is wrong. There is no doubt in my mind that it is wrong today to own other human beings. And I take it to an even further extent that won't interest anybody with the subject matter of this podcast, but maybe we can discuss that at a later time because it isn't germane to this particular inquiry that we're making. But in the 19th century and every century before that, slavery, whether biblically championed or championed by Islam or championed by secular governments, was the way of the earth up until that point of time. It was very hard for one to be an abolitionist, especially before 1850, and not be considered a fringe loon in society in the United States, and a little less so in the UK. And the UK stands as the standard bearer of the eradication of chattel slavery and the slave trade during the 19th century. A point of trivia that I find really interesting is that of the 13 million slaves that were taken from Africa, from other blacks, across the Atlantic to land anywhere from the French Atlantic seaboard in Newfoundland all the way down to Brazil and everything in between to include the very cruel haven of the Caribbean and what happened there with black slaves. 
what percentage of those slaves landed on the eastern seaboard, which would be the United States proper as we see it today. That total percentage hovers around 3%. It, it equals uh, 350,000 of the slaves that traveled across the Atlantic from Africa proper and, and landed in North America proper, as we know the United States coast today, is about 360,000. Uh, the remainder in the Caribbean and Brazil would number in the, on the order of 8 million plus, if one looks at this. And the, the, the site that I found this information on did a re really interesting thing. Speaking of, of accurate and responsible historiography, they looked at shipping manifests of ships that crossed the ocean at the time, all the way from 1510 to 1865. And of course, you, you can imagine that in the 19th century, those numbers started to winnow quite a bit. Please go to slavevoyages.org if you want to see the data and uh, play around with it yourself. So of course, what we have here, the reason I wanted to characterize both those things, both my pox on both houses with the Confederacy and the Union, and slavery is because slavery is part of the story that we're going to tell today as a result of Jack Hinson becoming a, a sniper as a result of Union occupation in the Kentucky and Tennessee borderlands and what led to that happening. Now, I also wanted to emphasize that it, there's some really interesting partisan, both Confederate and Union, bushwhacker, jayhawker, guerrilla, irregular warfare that was going on with names like Bloody Bill Anderson, John Mosby, Nathan Bedford Forrest certainly invested his name in, in, in some of that, that activity, especially in fighting against occupations. So with that in mind, let's get started. Jack, Jack Hinson is a very well-to-do plantation owner, farmer, and businessman centered in Bubbling Springs in Kentucky at the time, had a number of slaves, and you will find that in McKinney's book, he is neither uh, a champion nor a denier of slavery in its existence. He talks about it. He talks about it from what I would say is a very South Ron and Confederate sympathetic ear when writing about the activities of owning slaves, which he refers to in the book as servants, and says that that was the characterization that was used by most of the smaller owners, and Jack Henson was one of the smaller own owners on that. So Jack Henson, uh, not only did he purchase hotels, not only did he purchase, and hotel, these will be inns. He was a farmer, a rancher, a logger, uh, whatever it took to keep them pretty self-sufficient during the conflict. Now, in the conflict from 1860 to 1862, he was pretty neutral, Jack Henson himself. This, I would say, maybe a, a middle upper class landowner and a slave owner in Bubbling Springs, a man with no military background, a man who's 55, I think, at the beginning of the war, a man who, like is the way of the time, has a loving wife and many children. What sets Jack Hinson on his path of revenge is the murder of both of two of his sons. Now, one of his sons, I think 22, and there's an interesting story to this that is not germane to this episode. I urge you to write the book 
about the confusion between Robert and George Henson, two of his sons, one of whom was in the Confederate Army and one of whom, and killed by the Union, and one of whom happened to be a Confederate raider who had an irregular warfare unit that was quite successful due south of Bubbling Springs during the war until he was killed in 1863 in action. Now, what happens, though, is that, as is the way then, hunting wildlife to bring fresh meat to the, to the door, firearms are everywhere, even during wartime. I think it's 1862. Two of his sons, I think they're aged 17 and 22, respectively, grab their rifles, head out early in the morning to their deer blinds. They're going out to hunt. When they go out to hunt, a Union patrol in the occupied area that they happen to be living in comes across them waiting in their hide, accuses them of being Confederate guerrillas, and the hot-tempered and hot-blooded lieutenant and his sadistic sergeant not only murder both of these boys with rifles, but cut off their heads and then pay a visit to Jack Henson's home and put both of these heads on the entrance gate to his property. Now, you can imagine what that would cause most men who know what they're about to do, most men who know what they're about to do with a rifle. In this case, we have Jack Henson, who has not been a Confederate up to this point, not a Unionist up to this point, a neutral up to this point, as were so many there. As a matter of fact, I think he had hosted Ulysses S. Grant when he was in the area once or twice before this event occurred. And he, he had even uh, given some affidavits on the fall of Fort Donaldson in which he was talking about the way General Pillow, the Confederate general, had acted in a both insidious and dishonorable fashion to do what he did then, for which he spent a consider- Pillow spent a considerable amount of time trying to seek an apologia to take his dishonor and dispose of it. Didn't work. Jack Henson. 55, 56, has no military experience, but he's a seasoned hunter, as are most men who are Southerons at the time, especially in the Kentucky and Tennessee borderlands. Lots of Confederate guerrilla activity going on, some Union guerrilla activity going on, because in this area you had neutrals, you had Union strongholds, as was Kentucky for most of the conflict, and you and parts of Tennessee, and you had Confederate strongholds within there. So Because of this occupation, they would start, in this case, the Union Army and the generals, colonels, and officers appointed over over the men who would patrol the areas were practicing an occupation that got bloodier and more atrocious over time. This is the atrocity cycle. That's how I'll characterize it. The atrocity cycle is what happens when some kind of mutilation occurs of a body, desecration of a body, or, or the murder of these two young boys who, according to the records, were Confederate guerrillas, but according to the Henson family and the neighbors, were simply out there hunting. We will never know, but we can assume that what the lieutenant did from that Iowa regiment would set and train a vengeance cycle that Jack Henson would helm in which I think uh, there are probably a hundred alleged kills by Jack Henson between this point where he 
gets his custom-made 50 caliber rifle and starts plinking the first two people that he kills happen to be the lieutenant and the sergeant who were respectively responsible for the murder of his two young boys. And they talk about 100. Uh, uh, according to those who have custody of his rifle, and I think that Colonel Tom McKinney, the author of the book, has actually seen the rifle and laid hands on it, there are 36 hash marks on it. Now, those 36 hash marks may account for all the officers that he killed, and he may not have used hash marks to account for the enlisted men that he killed. Now, Jack, Jack Henson would, would get better and better at this. He would not be caught during the conflict itself. His family, to include his wife and his children and his property and his slaves and everything, would suffer greatly as a result of increasing suspicion of just who was doing this plinking of Union officers and men, whether it was patrols in the woods or one of his favorite hunting spots was along the river where he would plink naval officers. This atrocity cycle sets military men, to include regular warfare and irregular warfare, men-at-arms, into a lather that is really hard to contain, especially when it comes to occupation forces. And of course, we have the yin and yang where Newton's third law has a big vote in the military. And in this case, because of the heavy-handedness and bloody-mindedness of the occupation forces and how they got worse and worse on the civilian population, to include the maiming and killing of women and children and the burning out of homes and the total destruction of homesteads and plantations, this would lead to much reaction on the part of those who had lived in this country for hundreds of years. What didn't help them is that James Webb, not the NASA administrator, but the senator, wrote a book on the Scots-Irish. And in that book, he talked about the cult of dishonor, the cult of vengeance, this, this almost visceral and instinctive need to remedy dishonors visited upon friends and family by the Scots-Irish. Just so happens that Jack Hinson was of that cultural milieu, and that informs part of the vengeance cycle that started here. The atrocity cycle, of course, is what started by the murder of his two young boys and their beheading and the setting of those heads on the gates at his home, which would set and train all the events that we're going to discuss. It reminds me, for instance, that April 19th, 1775, in Massachusetts at Lexington and Concord, when the British were retreating, in this case, when the British regulars were retreating back to Boston, there was an incident on the North Bridge where they discovered that apparently a man and this is all um, apocryphal, a man of limited, uh, what, what we may consider disabled or mentally retarded today, took to one of the Red Colt soldiers' bodies and started to mutilate it, maim it, scalp it, and such. This sent the Red Coats, the British regulars, rightfully into a rage at this treatment dismemberment, and dishonor visited upon the bodies of one of their regimental members. So as a result of that, they started leaving the road, fleeing back to Boston, going into homes, kicking down doors, burning buildings, and uh, shooting people who weren't necessarily armed at the time. And of course, the reaction of the colonials 
who were British in the saddle, by the way, until the Declaration of Secession, they, uh, of course, this sets into train a, a massive atrocity cycle that simply never stops. One more thing on that before we return to Henson's story. When, when I was reading The Frontiersman by Alan Eckert, and he was talking about the Cherokee and the, uh, the Shawnee and all of these hundreds of Aboriginal tribes that were originally there, and the kind of warfare that they conducted, very much irregular warfare style, but scalping, torture, atrocity were part of the yin and yang in the relationship between these warring parties, whether they were Americans or the Indigs and the constant smaller and larger conflicts that they engaged in, which lent a ferocity and a disregard for civil behavior and warfare. That's right, civil behavior and warfare. That's what separates professional military men from serial killers. Would really take it on the chin and cause men to do things that maybe they shouldn't when it comes to decency and the laws of conflict that try to keep civilians out of the fray. So like with all things, when it comes to war and conflict and the unpleasantness that instantiates itself here, that these are vast, complex, adaptive systems in which one can throw a wrench. Murphy is very active and there are root causes and proximate causes to the way people behave and the way things turn out. The atrocity cycle, of course, tends to increase exponentially when one is fighting or engaged in an irregular conflict, and that's what occurs here. Now, it's interesting with Jack Henson, not only did he have the motivators of his Scots-Irish warrior culture, having this dishonor visited upon his family, and having the kind of uh, occupation behavior by the occupiers because they would seize people's property at gunpoint to include livestock, tobacco, garden vegetables, everything like that because as the occupying force, they felt that they deserved it because they were there and they had the guns and they knew that if those who had all of that property resisted, they could certainly label them as Confederate guerrillas and as is demonstrated in so much documentation at the time in the Tennessee and Kentucky wildlands and the places that have been settled by Confederate, neutral, and, and just civilian property owners, this, this was not ending well for a lot of them. And, of course, this would lend itself to the atrocity and revenge cycle. And the revenge cycle is sort of in a microcosm encompassed with everything that Jack Henson does. Jack Henson, he's 5'5", five five. he's got these cool gray eyes, he's uh, not the most handsome fellow, he's well-respected throughout the community as a businessman and an honest broker. I had mentioned earlier about his relationship with U.S. Grant, which would prove itself out towards the end, but I won't bore you with that because I don't want to reveal any spoilers. But what, what we have here is that when the occupation and of course, this will send shivers up the spine of the Koinonistas because they don't like to hear this. When an occupation abuses those in its charge, in this case, the civilian population, 
you find that increasing the ranks and vigor and steel in the spine of resistance forces and auxiliaries starts to increase greatly. And I also wanted to mention that Jack Henson, not being a military man, became a scout for Nathan Bedford Forrest. And Forrest was a man, really interesting character study. Here's a man who I think had shot another man dead once or twice for abusing a horse. He's had two horses shot out from under him in one of the, uh, one of the battles. He's a man who started this war as a private, ends the war as a general. As a matter of fact, Nathan Bedford Forrest probably ends this war in much better stead than a lot of Union generals, despite being defeated. Goes on to do other things post-war to include founding the Ku Klux Klan for a variety of reasons, but also goes on to inspire the German general staff in the 20th century, where when they were designing blitzkrieg tactics, they went back and they said, this cat Forrest in the American Civil War did some very interesting stuff that may deserve our attention and modification to see if we can use or implement his tactical and operational theory in the formation of blitzkrieg for our German armed forces. A couple things I want to note about Jack Henson's activities as a sniper and a very accurate marksman during the time. He did not take heated, hot vengeance. He was very cool, collected, and thoughtful and deliberate in his vengeance. When his boys were beheaded and said heads were put at the gates of his homestead, he did not instantly react. He did not find himself in an emotional rage. Very thoughtful. You get the sense that Jack Hinson was a very thoughtful guy, knew his community, knew the ground he lived on, knew the milieu that he was in. So Jack Hinson contracts out for an 18-pound, what is ultimately an 18-pound, 50-caliber, mini-ball-firing, rifled barrel octagonal, of course, Way I think it had a 41-inch barrel on it with sights that he made sure worked properly. It appears he made kills from as close as 50 yards to as far as 500 yards when he was doing his river sniping. Very deliberate. He always managed to find out, well, how is this going to shoot downhill? How will it shoot uphill? Like when he was shooting from the bluffs above the river, he did the measurements and he, he, did a, he did what modern riflemen such as ourselves and those of us who are involved in extra long-range shooting and, and uh, F-class shooting. I can tell from my reading that he had done his, his doping for his rifle. Dope means data on previous engagements. And those of us who have those kind of rifles, you have shooting books that record ambient air, temperature, wind, what round we were using that day, where we were, what the elevation was, all that kind of thing. It appears that he did all of that homework to make sure that when he fired a round, it would hit his target and he could exfil very quickly. Now, it takes a lot of talent to deliver the shots, apparently, that he did. One of the reasons, by the way, he would so often fire one round and leave is because, think about it, those of you who are either hunters, whether you have hunted bipeds or quadrupeds, if you fire one shot, hard for us to determine exactly where that's from. We can get a general idea of that azimuth. Fire two shots, 
human beings are trained where we can get a far narrower pie of where that shot came from. Hence, he would do that not only to avoid being chased, but to avoid the ability of them to catch him so that he could fight another day. Jack Henson also took advantage of what all of us refer to as guerrilla math or grunt math, which is that the enormous amount of regular and sometimes irregular forces, because there were Union guerrilla forces operating in the same area, who they would use to hunt. There were some frontiersmen, as a matter of fact, who were employed by both the Union and the Confederacy to do scouting and hunting. And as a matter of fact, Henson did some scouting for Nathan Bedford Forrest. But what you discover is that I think at one time they had taken an entire regiment, which let's call that strength 1,500 to 2,000 men. Uh, an entire regiment had been devoted to finding Jack Hinson because no one could ever catch him in the act once he had done these things. When I look at this book, I find Hinson's tradecraft, bushcraft, frontiersman quality, scout qualities, planning apparatus, his uh, military decision-making process, as it were. He was a very keen observer, and it is unimpeachable the way he waged this one-man war against the Union. And, of course, it provided a huge distraction to Union forces trying to consolidate their wins, in this case, the occupation, because once this happened, of course, the Union regular forces started to respond in a very draconian manner that would make one reminiscent of how the Germans treated Russians and Ukrainians at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa in 1941, and probably countless other armies throughout time and space, east and west, who have found themselves not doing positional warfare or maneuver warfare, but stuck in occupational duties and the things that young men especially below the age of 25, the kind of mischief that they will get into that extrapolated through circumstances makes it very difficult for that occupation to remain cold and not turn warm or hot as far as conflict because of the treatment of the occupation forces of those who find themselves on the pointy end who happen to have lived there for hundreds of years. And if this, for some reason, makes you even tangentially think there may be a connection to the neo-colonial and colonial warfare that's been practiced by European powers starting from the Victorian era in the 19th century, maybe even going back to India in the 18th century with Clive, all the way up to the current disasters by the West, especially the U.S., in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, the Horn of Africa, you name it. When you are an occupation force and you go in there and you don't have a measure of decency and you don't extrapolate what's going to happen as a result of that, you build Jack Hinson's. You build Hinson's sons, one of whom became quite a notable uh, Confederate guerrilla in charge of a company with extraordinary leadership skills. Uh, Nathan Bedford Force being on horseback. Uh, the, the book makes an, a very interesting point where those occupation forces on horseback tended to be able to find the malcontents and ne'er-do-wells, in this case, 
Confederate guerrillas easier than leg infantry could. But that leg infantry tended to do awful things as a result of the fact that they could not get forests or other Confederate guerrilla companies very mobile forces as a result of them being in the saddle and the leg infantry not. And since I didn't oblige Lieutenant Colonel Tom C. McKinney, USMC, retired, with, uh, with a brief bio, I'd like to do that. He's the author of this book. He's a graduate of the University of Kentucky and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He was an infantry officer and a paratrooper in the USMC, a paratrooper in the USMC. They're rare as hen's teeth. Serving in Korea and Vietnam, a student of military history, McKinney has contributed articles to such magazines as Guideposts, American Legion, Military, and Leatherneck. His books and advocacy for veterans issue have had him appearing on hundreds of radio and television shows. And he contributed an essay on World War II sniper Bert Kemp to the Sniper Anthology, Snipers of the Second World War, which was also published by Pelican, the publishers of this great hardback book I have in my hand. Now, the color and nature of the Union occupation forces and how bad they became over time. I wanted to draw one excerpt from the book. Quote, increasingly harsh policies on the part of the occupation forces and lack of direct oversight of detached Union units ranging over the area led at times to what can only be described as indiscriminate killing by Union forces. This was especially common in the areas of southern Stewart County. This is where Bubbling Springs was and where the holdings of Mr. Henson were. And northern Humphreys County, involving small Union detachments. It was an area far from the supervision of superiors in Dover, active with guerrillas and supportive of those guerrillas. One Sunday in the summer of 1863, a group of Union soldiers entered a church northeast of Aaron and took James Rushing and Hub Edmondson from a Sunday school class. The two young men were marched about a half mile up the road in order to kneel and say their prayers. While they were still praying, they were shot. The soldiers then walked up the road a piece, accused Frank Warden of being a guerrilla, and shot him dead. Such was the background to events in Stewart County that spring of 1862. During this period, Jack and Elizabeth Henson, that was Jack's wife, attempted to go on with their lives as they had done before the battle. This was a time of turmoil and adjustment, and everyone, military and civilian, Union and Confederate, was trying to find his place in the overwhelming developments and radical changes of all-out war. It was a time of establishing values and policies foreign to most of those involved, and the lessons in reality were coming fast and hard. This was the stage and the setting for the prolonged tragedy that would be played out in the lives of Jack Henson and his family and in the lives of the soldiers of the occupation forces around them and the battle had been the prelude, and the first act was to begin. And of course, in the following pages, the following chapters, McKinney talks about the murder of Jack Henson's sons and how that would set him on the path that would take the lives of over 100 Union officers and men. I really like this book. It's well-written, it's well-documented, and of course, it's biased. Of course it is, but all books are biased. What I love about books like this is that while he, not, he may not wear his Confederate triumphalism, in this case McKinney, the author, on his sleeve, obviously that's his perspective. I don't mind that at all because those people who say that one can be objective in history are dead wrong because what it is is we all have an internal bias. And if I know the bias of the author that I'm reading I can certainly acquaint myself with that bias and use that as a measure or a tether of what the author is trying to say. I'm also a big fan of footnotes and documentation, both primary source and secondary source, 
and McKinney does his homework. There is no doubt in my mind that the way he relates these events, which is 150 years after they happened, well, in this case, probably 130 years after they happened, he does an extraordinarily tight and efficient job of marshalling his evidence and showing what Jack Henson had achieved. Would love to see Jack Henson's rifle. So with that, highly recommend this book. Again, the book is Jack Henson's One Man War, A Civil War Sniper by Tom C. McKinney, USMC Retired. Highly recommend this book. It's just a, a really fascinating read and, like I said before, a ripping yarn. I hope to cover more stuff about this particular conflict from 1860 to 1865 in America in the future because when it comes to the Bushwhackers and the Jayhawkers, Ang Lee's film Ride with the Devil from 1999, for those of you who don't want to read a book maybe, or as an accompaniment to the reading that one would look at for Confederate and Union irregular warfare during that time, is a terrific film adaptation that really shows not only the cruelty but the honor on occasion and just the, the, the mixed loyalties and the mercurial alliances that occur, occurred during this time. And of course, this is timeless because when one examines irregular warfare throughout the ages, a lot of the themes that were captured in that brilliant film, Ride with the Devil, can be seen historically in practically any examination that we make. So with that, again, I highly recommend the book. Those of you who wish to get in touch with me, you can get in touch with me by writing me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. And as you've noticed in some of my preambles to these podcasts, I read everything you guys send to me, and I appreciate the, uh, the time you've taken. If you happen to like the podcast, I would love it if you wrote a brief review and uh, gave it the appropriate stars that you think it deserves at your favorite podcast vendor, and I'd be grateful for that. Until next time, which is a fortnight from now, this is Bill, out.